Let me read that text for us one more time. Luke chapter 1, 68 through 79 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Let's start uh, by imagining we've experienced what Zechariah did for a second. I told you a story. How would you feel? How, how, what, what would you be thinking? What would you do if you've been struck deaf and unable to speak immediately after you failed to believe God's messenger with a promise that you would regain your speech when your longed-for son would arrive? A son, by the way, who will not follow in your footsteps but as a priest, but will be the prophet of prophets, the forerunner of the Messiah himself. And here you are for nine months in utter silence. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? I've been thinking about that this week some. And when I first entered into this thought experiment, I'll be honest, I thought about negative things. I thought I'd be maybe a little embarrassed. Because sure, I'm sure since he had never been deaf before and silent, his newfound disability might be a little bit of a burden on his friends and family, and he brought it on himself. I also thought maybe he'd be, I'd be, I'd be a little indignant. I mean, what he was being told was a little unbelievable, so it kind of seems fair that he didn't believe it immediately. So those were my initial thoughts, but they didn't last long because then I realized that this disciplinary miracle, it would have given him further assurance of what the angel said, wouldn't it? And what the angel said was so amazing that if he was believing it, I imagine the overwhelming sensation he would be experiencing would be joy and gratitude and awe, right? I mean, he wouldn't have time to sulk because he would be too busy realizing that his wildest dreams, beyond his wildest dreams, were coming true. He was getting a son. And more importantly, he would see the coming of the Messiah. So then I realized that this temporary curse was actually a blessing, a gift. I mean, silence is the soil in which prayer and contemplation flourish. How would I use that time? I think I would pray a lot more. 
I think I would think about what God has promised deeply. Meditate on it. I would contemplate God's story throughout history leading up to this culminating point. I would plan and write and and think about when I regained my voice, what I would say. I would communicate more intentionally since I would have to write everything out. I'd really look at my wife when she talked to me in a way that I hadn't in many years. My life would be slower, less hectic. I was really moved thinking about this this week to a point where I almost wanted it. Which made me feel a little silly for thinking about it negatively at first. But I'm probably not alone in gravitating toward the negative aspects first. That's what we do. But if you slow down a bit, you see God's discipline is never just harsh treatment. It's always ultimately blessing. But for Zechariah, this silence was also a sign. Reflecting on centuries of silence that Israel had gone through. At this point in Israel's history, there was this building tension, anticipation, and hope mixed with doubt and despair. They're longing for God to move, to fulfill his promises, to speak, to act on their behalf. And that's why when John the Baptist does grow up and enter into his prophetic role, he's such a hit. I mean, we read about how weird he is and we wonder why so many people flock to him. And this is why, because they could tell they had a prophet again. God was on the move. Zechariah got to experience this joy in a deeper, more intimate way than anybody else. It's a palpable hope. And what this is, all this has done for me as I've been thinking about it is it's added another layer of weight to what Zechariah says when he finally speaks. So let me uh, kind of extend this thought experiment just a little bit. So what, what would you think about? What would you say on that day if you were him? What would you sing? If you had, I'll give you three main images uh, to speak about what God is doing. What would you pick? Who God is, what he's doing, and his time as you think about it. I'll tell you what Zechariah chose. This is what Zechariah sang about. These are the images. A horn, a covenant, and a sunrise. These are the Christmas images Zechariah sings about. He, doesn't, he does sing primarily about Christmas. I mean, he talks to his son John a little bit in that song, but primarily the song is about God and about what God is doing through the coming Messiah. And these three images, they may not be our first choices, but then none of us have been meditating on it for nine months in silence. So let's look at these images in order. First, a horn. He says in verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Jesus is a horn. This is probably the most surprising and strange of the images, at least for me, it was. And if you're like me, the first thing that you think about when you hear this word is a musical instrument, right? A horn like a trumpet or a French horn. Uh, But you and I are wrong because he's actually talking about the other kind of horn, the one like on a bull's head. And I know this because he says he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So, okay, so he's linking this to an Old Testament prophecy. And so we look for an Old Testament prophecy about a horn and David, and we find Psalm 132, 17, there I will make a horn sprout for David. Musical horns don't sprout. It's the horns coming from a bull's head that sprout, right? And when 
the full phrase, horn of salvation, is used in the Old Testament. It shows up in Psalm 18, which says, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. In other words, he's saying my defense shield and offense horn. This is an image of might and strength and power and glory. Sometimes when it's used in the Old Testament, it's actually translated as strength. So uh, you don't even know that the word horn is being used there. That's how close this connection is. It's the horn like when the prophet Micah says, I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people. Clearly, it's paired there with hooves. It's an animal horn. This this image that Zechariah has of Christmas is one of coming might and power to do battle on our behalf. It's not a sentimental image. It's a battle image. And it gets even more intense when you think about why a horn is so fearsome. Jesus has come to gore his enemies in order to save those under their oppression. Unless we understand the presence of the enemies we will miss the point of Christmas. Christmas has become to us kind of a, it's become one thing, a kind of a simple thing. But like all of our greatest truths, it's also a complex thing. Part of its wonder is that it strikes so many notes of of humility and merriment and gratitude and reverence, yes, but also of vigilance and of drama. Talking about Christmas, G.K. Chesterton said, it's not only an occasion for the peacemakers anymore for the merrymakers. It's not only a peace conference anymore than it is only a winter feast. There is something defiant in it also, something that makes the abrupt bells at midnight sound like the great guns of a battle that has just been won. There is in Christmas a true idea of an outpost, of a piercing through the rock and an entrance into an enemy territory, of undermining the world, of shaking the towers and palaces from below, even as Herod, the great king, felt that earthquake under him and swayed. This is what Zechariah is getting at with this image. It's not the empty sentimentality around Christmas we're accustomed to. None of these images are, we'll see. But he's pointing to the drama of Christmas, the insurgency of it, that it is a rescue story. That is what that word redeemed means through scripture. When he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has, he has visited and redeemed. Redeemed is this idea of getting back, of rescue, of deliverance. Like this word is used in the Exodus story when God saves his people from slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 6, God says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Christmas means, as Zechariah says, God has visited and redeemed his people. And Zechariah probably is thinking, at least in part, about deliverance from those worldly oppressors, like in the Exodus story, because the Jewish people, they find themselves uh, ruled by Rome in a way they don't like much. But there's clear hints that he's thinking beyond that, about a greater redemption. Because what does he say this redemption will accomplish? In verse 71, he says what it, He says kind of what a typical hope of redemption would mean, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. But then he goes on to talk about what this deliverance from these enemies might mean for us. In verse 74 and 75, he says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness 
and righteousness before him all our days. So we see freedom from fear, holiness, and righteousness. Now, freedom from fear is is one thing we would expect with a normal deliverance, but Zechariah sees something more, something different. Because it's not only freedom from fear, but freedom from unrighteousness and unholiness. Now, saving a person from an enemy doesn't usually make them righteous all of a sudden. Unless that enemy's oppression is directly aimed at destroying their righteousness and holiness. And that is what we have. The devil and our sinful flesh are enemies that oppress us and need to be slain. And Jesus is the horn of salvation. We see that Zechariah was thinking about this kind of salvation when he says to his son John, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's the salvation. The salvation from the tyranny of sin. God sees his people oppressed by a tyrant. One greater and more terrible and more enduring than Rome or Babylon or whatever. One that seeks to devour and destroy and one that only he can overcome. Our enemy is actually, it's, it's an alliance of evil forces because along with our sin is the devil and his evil spiritual forces that join forces to systematize and weaponize our more barbaric and, and wild evil of our sinful flesh. And so we're slaves in this domain of darkness and Jesus comes as a deliverer, a redeemer, a horn of salvation. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, one of my favorites says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is the conquering king who came to take us back, to destroy his enemies And that's what Paul says in Colossians 2, 13 and 15. Listen to this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, which is Paul's way of talking about demons and the devil, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God has triumphed over the devil and his demonic forces through his horn of salvation. And he has removed our sin by crushing it on the cross. Jesus' death was a decisive victory. The serpent bit the son of God's heel, sure. But he was only biting that heel as he crushed his head. And so what does this victory mean for us? Well, like as Zechariah said, it means freedom from fear. You don't need to fear these enemies any longer. You can have freedom in Jesus, in his power. He is with you to overcome. Jesus' victory has put you on the winning side. It has. And Zechariah says it means that we can serve him in holiness and righteousness. You are holy in him, righteous in him. You share in his holiness and righteousness through your faith. You're set apart and in right standing before God. I know you sin. But you're not a sinner. That's not your identity. That's your old identity, not your new one. You've got to believe that Jesus has won and you are on his side. 
You are holy and righteous. This is what defines you. This is our new identity and our great hope of consummation where we will live perfectly holy and righteous before him all our days. He can and will do that when he consummates his kingdom completely. God says in in Psalm 75, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. That's the first image, that of a horn. But Zechariah also talks a lot about covenant. Notice how much he talks about in this song, God's promises and commitments. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Verse 72, to show the, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. It's clearly very important to Zechariah that God is making good on his promises. That he hasn't given up on his people. And you know what? It's important to God too. God is always doing this. He's always sticking his neck out and putting his name on the line. He doesn't have to make promises and oaths and covenants and risk his reputation on following through. But he chooses to do this. And over and over again, so the people of Israel, they're waiting. As I pointed out earlier, this is, there's this building tension and longing because God has made these promises. And if you read the Old Testament, it's like a story without an ending, which isn't necessarily a hopeful place to be for Israel because again and again, they have failed to live up to their end of the bargain. They haven't been faithful to their side of the covenant. Which is why it's important to see exactly what Zechariah is is grounding his hope in. Look at verse 72 and 73. To show the mercy promised to our fathers, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant. An oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So what does he say God has promised? God has promised not just to act in response to their faithful obedience to the covenant. No, he's promised mercy to remember his holy covenant. And now when he talks about covenant, there's a lot of different ones to choose from because God is, like I said, is always making covenants. And the most recent of which would be his covenant with the people Israel, you know, the like 10 commandments kind of thing, obey these and I'll be your God. And they, that they would, you know, keep his law and he would bless them. But there's not much hope in that because as Zechariah knows his people's history and their failure to live up to their side of the covenant. So what covenant does he bring up? He goes even further back, and he talks about the promise to Abraham. Now, let me tell you a story about God's covenant with Abraham. Like I said, God's always putting his name on the line, making promises. When he calls Abraham out to follow him, he has, which, by the way, he has every right to do as God without making any promises to him, but he promises anyway. And he gives, promises him great promises, that he would have many descendants, and his lineage would be a blessing to all the nations. Now, Abraham, like Zechariah, was a childless old man. But he believed God. And God credited that to him as righteousness. Meaning he was in a right relationship with God. So to God, then, to be in a right relationship with him is to trust him. And Abraham lives in this trust for decades. And still, no children. And one day, Abraham asked God about it. And God reemphasizes his promise with a covenant ceremony. And he tells him to go get all these animals and cut them in half and form an aisle 
to walk through, flanked by carcasses, which he had to chase off birds of prey from. And we see, it sounds weird, but we see this kind of elsewhere, I think in Jeremiah, and it's a covenant ceremony emphasizing the high stakes of this covenant. To fail to fulfill it would be to end up like these animals. But then instead of having Abraham walk through that aisle, God puts him to sleep. And God himself, his glory represented by a flaming pot, passes through the aisle. What's God communicating to Abraham there? He's saying, I'm so committed to this promise that I've made. The promise that your family will be the blessing to my world, that I'm so committed to that, that I'm not willing to let your failure, the failure of my covenant partners, define the future of this relationship. Your failure will not remove my blessing from this world. And they would fail. But who's going to shoulder the bloody consequences for their failure to hold their side of the covenant? Well, who passed through the bloody aisle? God himself will bear the consequences. God's mercy is so great that he takes the failure of his covenant people on himself in order to uphold his covenant relationship. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant, the one from Abraham through whom all nations would be blessed. And he's also God bearing the consequences of his people's covenant failure. He's not only keeping and, he's, and fulfilling his covenant, but Jesus, once again, in Jesus, God makes a covenant, a new covenant, he calls it. A new covenant in his blood, Jesus says right to his disciples right before he went to die. Jesus is not only the fulfillment, but he is the start of something new. This is why when John the Baptist grows up and becomes a prophet, he goes to the Jordan River. What's significant about the Jordan River in Israel's history? That's where they entered the promised land. He's saying, we're rebooting this story. This is a new beginning. A new covenant will come. A covenant not only of external commands, but of indwelling. A covenant of freedom and of faith. Jesus' Holy Spirit fills the hearts of his people in this covenant through our trusting him and his sacrifice on the cross. He empowers us to live a life of love. Once again, I love this. God is, in this covenant, God is unwilling to let our fallibility and failure dictate his covenant. So we trust in him rather than in ourselves. And he works in us as we trust in him. And this promise is to all the peoples of the earth, to everyone who believes in Jesus. Zechariah, in singing about this, He's singing about the demise of his own profession. He knows that as a priest now, he is one of the last of his kind. That the Messiah will fully cover the sins of all who trust in his sin-destroying death. Jesus and Christmas, it's the dawning of a new day. Which is why Zechariah, he sees that and he uses this third image, right, of a sunrise. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the sunrise visiting from on high. 
He's the dawn. Or as one of my favorite Christmas songs calls him, the day spring. It's a great word. It's a beautiful image. So it's probably the most sentimental sounding of these Christmas images Zechariah sings about, but not as much as it may seem at first, because inherent in the sunrise is night. The dawn is significant because of the darkness. A darkness that's tied in a very close way to death, as he points out. He calls this darkness the shadow of death. And as I thought about this song that Zechariah sings, I I loved how different it is than a lot of the Christmas stuff in our day can be. It's not empty sentimentality or naive nostalgia. He gives a strong, deep, substantial view of Christmas, a, a hope that is hard won and deeply meaningful. And though I, I mean, I love the warm fuzzies as much as the next guy, but this oversimplified, shallow sentimentality of Christmas has ruined some of the best parts of it. And just think about how hard it is on those who are going through hardship. For those in financial struggles or those who have experienced loss and are sitting in the shadow of death, because of what Christmas has become, those people can not only feel the natural pain and grief that would be normal to their situation, but they actually feel out of place at times. Some feel like they don't belong in Christmas, like they they just need to get through this season, like it's actually an added burden. We've done this to them with our sentimentality. But Zechariah says the exact opposite. Christmas is for those people. The sunrise has come to shine on those in the shadow of death. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. She says, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors and pain of humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. That's such an important thing to recognize about Jesus becoming a man. And it's, helpful, it's a helpful corrective for how we experience Christmas. Christmas is the message of hope to the hurting. That it won't always be this way. That even now the revolution and renewal has begun. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise has visited us from on high. Do you give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace? One excellent song that is somehow held on as a popular Christmas carol despite being really great and having deep theology is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And whoever wrote that song must have been meditating on Zechariah's song, at least in part. Listen to this verse. O come thou day spring from on high and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. I love that song. That's our Christmas cry. Come thou dayspring from on high and death's dark shadows put to flight. So good. And it's probably not surprising to you that this image of the sunrise, it's from the Old Testament too, right? Zechariah clearly cherished 
his scriptures and, and draws from them deeply. And, in, and this is, uh, in particular, is drawing from Isaiah 9, which is where we find that famous um, Christmas passage that says to us, a child is born, son is given, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, all that. You know, you probably know it. Well, Zechariah is referencing how that passage begins. In verse 2, Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. To those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And it's the same verses in, in Matthew's gospel whenever that Matthew quotes whenever that he's saying is being fulfilled when Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew 4. So let's dig into this image of the sunrise a little bit more. What's the sunrise communicating? We've already mentioned newness, right? The dawning of a new day. But what else? And I've already hinted at this, but it's communicating life, vitality. We see that he and Isaiah, they connect darkness with death. And light, by contrast, then brings life. Jesus is the light of life. He is the Lord of life. He is the one who conquers death. If death is a bee, Jesus let it sting him and remove the stinger. If, it's an, uh, if the grave is an undefeated champion, Jesus entered the ring and won. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on our hope because of Jesus, and he taunts the enemy death that has for so long oppressed us with fear. And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he turns to us and he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In, in the reign of death, our labor is in vain. We die and it's all undone. In Jesus, it's not so. It's not in vain. So we can be steadfast. Death was once this looming giant casting its shadow over all of us. And now all it is is a shadow. Without any substance. We pass right through it into a greater light. And one day even the shadow is fading away. With this rising sun. To be completely swallowed up by its light. Swallowed up in victory. But I say this, and I know that many of you are, are underestimating death's reign. It has a grip on humanity even while we're breathing. Death, it not only takes our bodies, but it has invaded our souls. This is why we need that new covenant that I talked about. We need Jesus not only to become a man and in our place, but to invade our hearts with his spirit. Defeat the enemy on that turf as well, to give life to our spirits by his spirit. Ephesians 5 talks about his victory like this. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So Christ's victorious life is so powerful that it can extend into us and make us live truly alive. There's this Christian punk rock band that Audrey and I used to love and listen to a lot uh, called The Wedding. And I was listening to, I haven't listened to them in years, but I was listening to them again recently because I was working on the house I'm renovating late at night and needed some rock and roll for energy. And they're still so good. And there was this one line where he says this, so you want to live forever, but you just never want to die. 
all the glory of a good man, but at the lowest price. And man, that's powerful. Do you want to live forever? Live forever? Or do you just never want to die? He's saying truly living is more than just not dying. It's not just existing. Just existing in this world of deep darkness is death, not life. Jesus comes and he brings true life that's more than a vapor. That life that is more than just buying time or wasting time. Life that's full of meaning and power and joy. Life as it's meant to be. Even greater than before it was ruined by sin. Because it's his own life shared with us. He is the light of life. The day spring. But one more thing about the sunrise. Perhaps the most obvious thing. It brings illumination. It allows us to see. In the darkness of night, we are lost because we simply can't find the path. But Jesus leads us by lighting the path. And Zechariah tells us what that path is. Look how he ends this song. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The path lit by Christ is, is the way of peace. How do you know that you're walking on the path of Christ? It's the path of peace. Again, this is not sentimental, therapeutic peace. He's drawing from Isaiah 59 when he says this. Isaiah says this. The way of peace, they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. Isaiah is saying that humanity in the darkness walks on crooked paths of injustice and unrighteousness, of destruction and conflict, which he contrasts with the way of peace. So the way of peace that Jesus leads us in is peace opposed to injustice. Peace rather than strife. Peace rather than selfish indifference. Peace of confidently knowing our path because we are at peace with our maker. Isaiah goes on in the same chapter and he points to our hope with what I hope is some familiar imagery now. He says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Our redeemer makes peace and leads us in the path of peace. The hard, against the grain path of peace. But we can see where we're going. Because it's lit by the one of him who has gone before us. If we're going to live in the light of Christmas, we are going to be people of peace in this dark world. Because Jesus made peace between us and God. By his mercy. And last. Zechariah says both the horn image and the dawn image. He, he says that both of them are motivated by God's mercy. And that's, that's the last thing I want you to know this morning, that God, our God is merciful. Meaning that he wants to welcome you. He wants to forgive your sins. If you have a view of mercy that is withholding a punishment that you really want to dole out, that's not God's kind of mercy. Zechariah sings of his tender 
mercy or his compassionate mercy. He cares deeply for you. He, he wants to slay your sin by the horn of his salvation. He wants to commit himself to you in his new covenant. And he wants to shine upon you and give you light and his life lighting your path. He has come. Trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending Jesus as the horn of our salvation. Our mighty, victorious Savior. We thank you for your covenant commitment to us in him. And we thank you for your light, your life that allows us to live and to see. We are humbled by your mercy. May we not take that for granted. I pray that everyone here today would truly grasp the tenderness of your mercy in such a way that draws us near in faith. And we pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen.